choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode number... 350 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 15, Lunar Liftoff, Rendezvous, and Docking. This is a CBS News special report. Arrived on the moon. The flight of Apollo 15. This afternoon, Falcon's Flight from the Moon. This broadcast is sponsored by orange-flavored and new grape-flavored Tang for spacemen and Earth families. And by Western Electric, the people who make communications equipment for the Bell System. Reporting from the CBS News Space Headquarters in New York, correspondent Walter Cronkite. Well, about nine minutes from now, at 11 minutes past one Eastern Daylight Time, Dave Scott and Jim Irvin will end their historic three days on the moon, 67 hours, by blasting off from its surface in their Falcon Lamb. Some course changes en route, uh, some maneuvering that will carry them back to the Apollo command ship and Al Warden in about uh, two hours' time for docking shortly after three o'clock Eastern Daylight Time. With them, Scott and Irwin will be taking more scientific information than gained in all of the other moon flights, the three previous ones uh, together. There are more than 200 pounds of moon rocks, and that exceeds the total of the other three flights. And this time, some of them hopefully will date back to the origins of the moon some four and a half billion years ago. There was only one hitch during the preparations for ending this moon stay, a brief lapse in communications between the ground and Worden's Apollo uh, command ship on its uh, 47th revolution, the last one. Uh, but as uh, soon as Apollo came back in radio range of the Earth again, communications were right back to normal, uh, so no problem at all. Al Worden is on his 48th revolution, his last one, uh, of the moon alone. He also has set a record for solo flight around the moon, also 67 hours, of course. The liftoff ends man's longest day and sets those records. Al himself has been busy for three days up there with the most detailed list of photography and other experiments in space, the greatest ever assigned to a command pilot orbiting the moon, waiting for his moonwalking buddies. Uh, In this last uh, few hours this morning, he's been housekeeping. In fact, that's where he was when the the, uh, uh, ground was trying to get in touch with him a little earlier, I think. He was packing up uh, various bits of waste and things about the cabin, that uh, he can jettison in that uh, lunar module, the ascent stage of Falcon, so that uh, they can send all that junk back to the moon, too, when they cast off uh, the Falcon uh, uh, ascent module a little later on in the afternoon. When they do cast it off, they will direct it in a course that will take it plunging into the moon just 30 miles from the uh, seismographic station set up in the science uh, 
central area of the Falcon landing area, and they should get some excellent uh, earthquake-type information from that. They know that it weighs 3,669 uh, pounds precisely at that time. Uh, correction, that's the miles per hour. It weighs 5,196 pounds precisely, and it will be traveling at 3,769 miles per hour. So uh, the seismologists uh, and the other scientists can determine exactly what the impact was. Our coverage of Falcon's assigned, uh, ascent from the moon will continue in a moment. As Scott and Irwin prepared to lift off, Worden got ready for their direct rendezvous. Ed Mitchell, the lunar module expert, was back at Capcom for this critical time. He radioed Al a flurry of numbers telling him where and when he would need to be to rendezvous with the lunar module. Suddenly, Al lost his signal and assumed that Ed was finished. For 20 minutes, Mitchell tried to contact Worden on the radio, while Al, oblivious to the urgency of the situation, continued to prepare his spacecraft. With less than one minute to go before Al glided around the far side of the moon and out of radio contact, Ed got him on the radio and gave Al the last important numbers. Shortly thereafter, Mission Control gave the go for liftoff. It's just five minutes, uh, four minutes and 52 seconds to be precise, until the uh, liftoff, uh, scheduled liftoff of the Falcon from the moon. At this point, Al Worden in the command ship Endeavor is, uh, will be about 93 miles behind them, that is, east of them. Uh, the orbit, uh, orbital altitude of the Endeavour is a little bit uh, more than have been calculated. Uh, its uh, orbit is at 71 by 85 uh, statute miles. They had uh, anticipated in the flight plan that it would be about 68 and a half miles on an average, running around 68 and a half uh, to 68.8 miles. As a matter of fact, 68.5 would be the parallel, the lower point, uh, actually, of the orbit, but uh, somewhat higher than that, so they have updated the rendezvous information for the lunar module, and that uh, for the command module as well. Now, with only uh, a little less than four minutes to go now, uh, we can listen in as uh, the ground is talking to both the command module and to the Falcon, getting them ready for this uh, critical phase, quite obviously, of any moon mission. Incidentally, we might tell you that uh, the sad word came up a moment ago from the ground uh, that, uh, to, to us at any rate, uh, that there will be no attempt uh, with that camera to track uh, the liftoff of the Falcon. Uh, they, we will see the actual liftoff, but won't see the vehicle very much after that. Clutch trouble. Uh, they don't want to take a chance of getting it frozen in an up position there. They might be able to track up and not get back down again. And for the scientific reasons, they want to take a pretty good look at the uh, site uh, the, of the lunar descent stage uh, as it is left behind. We'll listen in now. Okay, uh, we've had trouble on the VHS check to see approaches the mountains back there. We 
There's an eight-second delay in getting the picture down and back and so forth uh, that we tried to explain to you two before. So uh, while you hear the astronauts uh, talking about uh, liftoff, uh, you'll be seeing the uh, lunar module still sitting there on its launch pad, which is its descent stage. It'll be an eight-second delay before it actually takes off. Fox? Seems to me it's going to be four seconds. There's a color okay, converter lag, lag in there as well. Lift off, and I assume you've taken your explorer hats off and put on your pilot hat. That was well aligned for our ship. Ready to do some flying. Capsule communicator is Ed Mitchell, who was on the surface of the moon with Al Shepard in the last flight. Oh, okay. I wanted to delay the speech because it... Oh, a big part. We had lip sync when, uh, when we saw the picture earlier, no? Yeah. <laughs> I'll get back to you on that. <laughs> Maybe they delay both simultaneously. That music is from Falcon itself, a tape recorder aboard Falcon playing the Air Force song. How very, about that? Very good show. <laughs> that music is from the CSM downlink. Oh, CSM. Yeah, we got some bum information here that it's from the Falcon. It's actually from the Endeavor. Network corrects that to say it's from the LEM downlink. Uh-huh. <laughs> 
<laughs> Houston was wrong. <laughs> well, let's straighten out the communication snafu here now. We at CBS News reported that it was on the limb, the Falcon. Houston, uh, the voice of Mission Control, said it was uh, on Endeavor. They came back and corrected that and said that it was on Falcon. Saved us from having to fire somebody. Just said two Air Force men fired anyway. <laughs> oh, boy. Very nicely. Falcon Houston, you're looking good at three minutes. plane at 171 hours 37 minutes ground elapsed time exactly on schedule falcon's engine lit hurling dave and jim spacecraft upward in an impressive flurry of dust and debris captured for the first time on camera and transmitted live to a worldwide audience they quickly pitched over and zipped along the reel on a curving path required to reach the command and service module. As they rose, Worden turned on the cassette player. He had, of course, planned this well in advance. Al thought it would be fun to play the Air Force anthem to Mission Control to provide a stirring background. It turned out not to be such a great idea. Perhaps it was related to the earlier communication problems and Mission Control was playing it safe, but Al's radio signal was not only heard on Earth. For some reason, Mission Control also patched it through to the Falcon. While Dave and Jim were intently focused on their checklist, they now had distracting music in their ears. Had something gone wrong with Falcon at that moment, the music could have been a dangerous diversion. Fortunately, everything went to plan, and Dave and Jim flew into orbit below and behind the command and service module. Al soon had a good radar lock on them, and guided by Ed Mitchell back on Earth, Dave and Al flew their spacecraft ever closer, mirroring each other's moves. Soon after, on the far side of the moon, Dave spotted Endeavor, a dim star in the distance. 
as Falcon steadily rose to meet the command and service module, Dave and Jim gave Endeavor an extensive visual inspection while Al photographed the Falcon. Falcon had left its descent stage on the surface of the moon and was now much smaller than when Al had seen it last. With the descent stage gone, the lunar module appeared fragile, and to Al, it looked as though he could reach out and crumble it with his fist. Glinting in the sunlight, it was painfully bright to stare at. Falcon's mass was so light, a pulse of their thrusters rattled Dave and Jim around, so it was easier for Al to dock using Endeavor. Worden slowly slid toward them, so gently that they barely touched. Then, with a touch of his thrusters, he moved forward into a hard dock. The rendezvous and docking had been fast and perfect. Good show, Endeavor, Dave radioed to Al. Welcome home, Worden replied. Most of the audio clip of the docking is unfortunately garbled, but right after hard dock, it got much clearer. Like all previous command module pilots, Al had kept Endeavor clean and tidy during the absence of Dave and Jim. But now, as he opened the hatches between the spacecraft, Al saw two grimy faces up close and personal. Their spacesuits were dirty 
and Al could smell the moon dust in the air. It was a peculiar odor to him, dry and gunpowdery. Naturally, Worden objected to this. His beautiful, clean spacecraft was being soiled by the limbs' pollution drifting through the hatch as they opened up. The crew tried to keep the hatch closed unless they were physically transferring something, but they still had to move all those boxes and bags of rocks into the Endeavor. They were mostly successful, but the creep of dust was unavoidable. Dave and Jim floated long sample tubes of lunar dirt and boxes of moon rocks through the hatch, which Al stowed inside Endeavor under the couches. Mindful of the new rules after the Soyuz 11 depressurization tragedy, they all kept their space suits on. While busily running Simbay experiments, Worden also stored Falcon's flight plans and checklists, food, priceless photos in film magazines, and the not-so-priceless Dave and Jim's used urine and fecal bags. In the process of this unpleasant duty, Al pondered why it was necessary to bring back bodily waste from the surface of the moon. Finally, Dave and Jim floated into Endeavor. Al was elated to see them, but Dave didn't look too happy. In fact, while Jim avoided eye contact, Dave loudly berated Worden about the distracting Air Force anthem piped into the Falcon during liftoff. According to Worden's account, Dave asked, quote, Didn't you know you could have jeopardized the whole mission by playing that darn music? End quote. This was hardly the reunion Al had expected. He immediately apologized to Dave and explained that he had only radioed it to Houston with no clue they would patch it back to the Falcon. This explanation seemed to satisfy Dave for the moment, and he did forgive Worden. In fact, months later at an award ceremony with the Air Force Association, Dave bragged about playing the tune. Fortunately, there was no time for Al or Dave to dwell on the argument. They had too much to do. Dave and Jim were busy ensuring they had moved everything in from the Falcon, and they did miss some items, including some of their personal preference kits. They failed to discover that mistake for quite some time. Behind in the timeline, they hustled to close the hatches and pressurize their spacesuits. Dave's suit did not pressurize properly on the first attempt, nor did the spacecraft hatch seal correctly, possibly due to some lunar dust on the seal. After more time-consuming checks, they finally seemed to have the problem solved, and Dave and Jim removed their helmets and gloves. They had started their day with a demanding moonwalk, and they hadn't eaten for eight hours. They were ready to stop for a while and grab some food. 
Then it was time to finally undock from the Falcon. The crew went through the undocking procedure, and after the hatches were closed and they were assured a good seal on the hatch, Mission Control radioed, quote, 15 seconds to Lunar Module Jettison. Hope you let her go gently. She was a nice one, end quote. As the lunar module separated, Al reported back, It's away clean, Houston. Dave and Jim really felt this separation. To them, the Falcon was the best. At first, the lunar module just sat there in space as the command and service module backed away. Then the ground sent a signal commanding Falcon's engines on, which slowed the ascent stage down so much it left orbit and went into a carefully calculated trajectory. The crew hoped that they might see it hit the surface, but they couldn't. They were in darkness again, and they still had their suits on, except for helmets and gloves. Al was also acutely aware that they were now down to one engine. The big engine in the service module was the only way out of lunar orbit. So far, it had worked well day after day, so most likely it would be okay. The separation had taken longer than planned, so instead of the crew's scheduled rest break, they jumped back into their chores, including some more Simbay experiments. Dave and Jim didn't seem tired to Al, but it was hard to tell when they all had so much to do and were flying around getting it done. All of a sudden, for the first time in the flight, Jim felt really tired. He told Al and Dave, Just let me lie here for a bit. I'm physically exhausted. He laid down for about five to ten minutes as they were getting ready to take off their suits and prepare for bed. Then, about that time, they heard the gruff voice of Deke Slayton over the radio, who only got in the loop when there was something important. This is Deke, the voice growled to Jim. I'd like to have you and Dave at least take a sleeping pill before you go to sleep so you can really power down for the night. You guys need it. It's up to Al whether he wants one or not. Dave immediately looked puzzled. A sleeping pill was a sedative. Why would Deke ask two of them to take it and not all of them? Without an explanation, Dave decided he wasn't going to take it. They continued running their experiments and stowing equipment. Meanwhile, at Mission Control, the doctors grew alarmed. Watching their instruments, they could see something wrong with Jim's heartbeat. Both sides of his heart were contracting at the same moment. They had spotted similar minor blips with both Jim and Dave while they were on the moon. But this irregularity looked worse. Jim could be heading for a cardiac arrest. The doctors chose not to tell the crew. Neither did Deke, who simply requested they take the sleeping pills. They only had one other clue that something might be wrong. 
when the ground told Al, We'd like to make sure tonight Jim is on the EKG for the evening. They wanted to keep monitoring Jim's heart via his biomedical harness. Again, they never said why. But by this time, the crew all felt dead tired and didn't ask questions. Jim and Dave were so dedicated to the mission that they would have worked until they dropped. Now, if Jim were to have a heart attack, it was about as good a place as he could be. Weightless, breathing pure oxygen, and wired to a heart monitor. Still, the ground should have told Dave about the problem. As commander, he needed all available information about his crew. By the time the crew got to sleep, Al had been awake for more than 21 hours, and Dave and Jim for 23. If the crew had known of Jim's serious condition, they would have stopped much earlier. Instead, they continued working for three and a half hours after Deke's call before they finally finished their day and went to sleep for nine hours. It was later determined that the physical stress of working on the moon combined with the brutal training before launch had left Jim and Dave's hearts depleted of potassium. We will never know for sure, but it's possible Jim's heart was permanently damaged that day and the countdown to his premature death had already begun. The next morning, they all felt much better. Still wary of Jim's condition, the ground asked him to continue to wear biomedical sensors instead of a planned switch with Dave. Without an explanation given, Dave overrode the request. He knew how uncomfortable the sensors could be after a number of days and gallantly took Jim's place. Because Al had changed orbit to rendezvous with Falcon, they now passed over new regions of the moon. The crew worked like mad, taking pictures as they glided across the ever-changing landscape. The laser was failing, so they had to cycle its power switch on and off in a last futile effort to keep it working. Al still struggled with booms refusing to retract and equipment was starting to deteriorate. But with all three of them in the spacecraft, they could run SimBay experiments and take photos out of the windows at the same time. So they all stayed very busy. The failing equipment was offset by the amount of information being gathered. However, with all three of them scrambling to accomplish tasks, Al's day seemed much more complicated he was glad to have Dave and Jim back alive, of course, but he began to miss working alone when he didn't have any overlapping task. They still had lots of film left, so they eagerly recorded many interesting geological features. While they did, the ground continued to ask cryptic questions about Jim. Mission Control asked, can you guys give us any estimates on water that you and Jim consumed on the surface and any differences between this and what Al's been consuming? 
Still unaware of the reason for the questions, Dave brushed them off with, I think that is probably a good discussion for the debriefing after the flight. The crew was once again asked to take sedatives for the sleep period, and once again Dave responded, I think that's unnecessary. The nearest to an explanation the crew received was, We are anxious for all of you to continue eating and drinking well because of the EVA yet to come. If Mission Control would have told the crew the truth, they would have shared their anxiety and probably followed their request. Instead, obliviously, they continued with the science objectives, mapping and measuring the moon until Mission Control told them it was time to go to sleep. The crew was up the next morning, eager to do more of the same. They zoomed in on the shadowy amphitheaters of crater rims and floors of the moon, prying out their secrets with their camera lenses. As they continued their lunar orbit, Dave told the geology team back on Earth that he could spend weeks and weeks just looking, and he could pick out any number of superb landing sites. Then he became a little emotional and radioed, quote, There's just so much here. To coin a phrase, it's mind-boggling. End quote. As the crew began their final lunar orbits, they operated the panoramic camera until the film ran out. Somewhere below them, a Soviet robot was driving around on the surface making discoveries of its own. Perhaps they would capture it on film and have a nice photo to present to the Russians. Then it was time to raise their orbit a little, so the satellite they were about to deploy could circle for a year before it was pulled down by gravity. A quick three-second burst from the main engine raised their orbit by more than ten miles. Launching an unmanned spacecraft from a manned spacecraft around the moon had never been attempted before. Our carefully aligned Endeavor flipped a switch, and from its cradle inside the service module, he could hear the satellite whipping along a curved groove in its spring-loaded release device like a bullet in a rifle barrel. By the time it spun off the end and into its own lunar orbit, the little tubular satellite was rotating fast enough to push out three whip-like arms which stabilized its wobbling spin. The crew watched it leave from the windows, its tiny solar panels glinting in the sunlight. Scientists on Earth would track the satellite for months to come, learning more about the moon's gravity field, Earth's magnetic field near the moon, and solar particles. The moon's gravity would eventually drag it down to make a new crater, Apollo 15's final contact with the lunar surface. After six days in lunar orbit, it was finally time to go home. Al busily checked the temperatures and pressures of the main engine's propellant tanks. 
if there was ever a time that he felt particularly tense or nervous on the space flight, this was it. With no lunar module, they were down to one engine. If it failed, they would be looking at the lunar surface for the rest of their lives, which would be as long as the oxygen lasted. In addition, without Falcon attached to the nose, Endeavour was a much lighter machine. If the engine's control system did something wrong, Al would have to react instantly, or they could be quickly rocketed in the wrong direction. As Earth began to set on the lunar horizon and they prepared for their final pass over the lunar far side, Joe Allen wished them good luck with a final nod to James Cook's era of exploration, saying, quote, Set your sails for home. We're predicting good weather, a strong tailwind, and we'll be waiting on the dock. End quote. When the engine lit, it was a real kick in the pants. The crew could feel the steady acceleration as it burned for over two minutes. Al warily watched the gauges that told him the engine was burning smoothly and steadily, speeding them on the correct curved pathway out of lunar orbit and back to Earth. To everyone's relief, the burn was beautifully smooth. Soon they rounded the far side again, and as they climbed away from the moon on their new course, Dave could announce, Hello, Houston. Endeavors on the way home. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 350 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Apollo 15, Lunar Liftoff, Rendezvous, and Docking. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. Our next episode is scheduled to be released in two weeks on November 5th. If you are looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 177 are available on the Archive Podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. Okay, I had a few afterthoughts on this episode, and of course, we will have the Tang Ceremony. Another one of my great memories that I have about Apollo 15 was the first TV video of the launch of the ascent stage from the moon. Now I, like a lot of people, expected it to go up slowly because we, I don't know, we just thought it would go up slow. Every rocket launch we see, it seems to be up pretty slowly. (laughs) But this one's on the moon. And we expected it to go up slowly. And... I expected to see the flame of the engine. Instead, it shot up almost like it was spring-loaded, and I couldn't see any flame. 
Then the limb was gone from view in about a second. I was so disappointed that NASA wouldn't risk panning the camera up so we could see the rest of the launch. Then I heard someone say that the next mission they were going to pan the camera, but that would be months away. And to a 10-year-old kid, that seemed like forever. (laughs) Nevertheless, I do vividly remember how much I enjoyed seeing that the first part of the liftoff from the moon. It was absolutely surprising and fantastic. I loved it. Which brings us to the Air Force Anthem being played at liftoff. Cronkite and Sherall loved it, (laughs) but Dave did not. To Al, it seemed like a great idea, since it was an all-Air Force crew. But he didn't realize that Mission Control was going to pipe it back up to the Falcon, which would be very distracting during a crucial moment in the mission. Al just assumed that it would only be heard at Mission Control. Obviously, He had to have planned this musical salute in advance, but he didn't bother getting permission to do it. I suspect because he knew NASA would not have given him permission to do it. Now, Al, he had good intentions, but it really was a bad idea. I could just see Dave trying to concentrate on the first crucial moments of Falcon's launch and being distracted by that music. There must have been steam coming out of Dave's ears, and he had every right to be angry about that. Moving on, I apologize for some of those clips. I wanted to play more of the docking especially, but it was so garbled you just couldn't hear anything. And strangely enough, my source for some of the clips is the Internet Archive. And some sections of those clips seem to be playing backwards, or at least you can't understand what they're saying. I mean, there are three-hour clips there that you can't even understand anything that's going on on some of those things. So unfortunately... Uh, They're not of much use. So, as usual, (laughs) there were clip problems. We have this quite often. Okay, it is time for the moment we have all been waiting for. The Tang Ceremony. I think since the podcast began, we have celebrated 50 episode milestones by sharing a glass of Tang. Of course, I never planned to reach 350 episodes. Okay, I have my lovely wife here, Mrs. SRH. Hello, everyone. (laughs) All right, very good. (laughs) She's with me here. And if you would like to join us in the ceremony, now is the time to go get your beverage. We'll wait here. Okay, time's up. (laughs) All right. We have 
our tank, of course, and we have two glasses of water. Now we filled our glasses half full, so we can uh, only, we don't want to enjoy it too much. <laughs> All right, here's the tang. I, I want to thank Joe who sent us this tang. We, he was a listener and we appreciate him sending in this package of tang here. Open up tang. My grandsons have really enjoyed this too. And uh, Mrs. SRH and I both have a spoon and we both have our own half full glasses. And we will now spoon in some tang. Go ahead, Mrs. SRH. I think what I'm going to do is, I think that's a two-spooner, since it's just a half half a glass there. It's a two heaping spoonfuls there. Yeah, I think so. That looks good. All right. We'll stir it up. Stir up our tang. Don't want any powder left down there because uh, powdered tang is not as good <laughs> as liquid tang. All right. Is that, it's also not a good idea to put a wet spoon back inside the, the tang container. All right, I'm putting the top back on so it doesn't fall and dump all over the desk here. Okay. All right. We would like to thank you, the listeners of this podcast, for supporting us for 350 episodes. Cheers. Thank you. delicious mm. I've drunk all mine <laughs> fantastic as <laughs> usual <laughs> I do like it I really do <laughs> and the grandkids they like it too. you'd think we were running a Tang commercial but we don't get a dime for this maybe Tang should be paying us or something because <laughs> we don't get anything from Tang and we do need to keep it in the house because those grandsons look for that every time every they time come. they come over. Let's make some tang. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's we'll continue on with the podcast. If you are enjoying the podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting the podcast. For over seven and a half years, we have been entirely listener supported. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Over the last fortnight, we had a few new contributions. I'd like to thank Sherman M. from South Carolina, who donated at the Vostok level. Ralph P. from New York sent in another donation and moved to the Vostok level. Jenna B. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Chris B. from Akron, Ohio pledged on Patreon at the Soyuz level and earned a moon emoji. And Fred L. pledged on Patreon at the Soyuz level. Well, we lost two more Patreon donors and we're down to 246. We're going in the wrong direction there, unfortunately. Our goal is to reach 300 by the end of the year. Our total donors for 2020 have reached 403, with a goal of reaching 500 by the end of the year. Now here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. The winner for this episode will get the choice of 
a space rocket history magnet, or two coasters, or two stickers, or two static clings, or two holographic stickers, or the new SRH archive magnet. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Henry Everett. Henry Everett, if you would email us, Mike, at spacerockethistory.com, tell us your address and your SRH prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 403 of you who have contributed thus far in 2020. My sources for this episode were Falling to Earth and Apollo 15 Astronaut's Journey to the Moon by Al Worden, NASA, Two Sides of the Moon by David Scott, To Rule the Night by Jim Irwin, Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz, The Apollo 15 Flight Journal, The Apollo 15 Lunar Surface Journal, Internet Archive, Wikipedia, and CBS News. And that will do it for episode number 350. I'll try to have episode 351 posted by Thursday, November 5th. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.